you read through Acts, they were preaching the gospel in this place, and miracles happened here. Then in Cyprus, it happened like this, and in this town, it happened like this. In this town, they were run out of town because of persecution, and, but wherever they were going, they were making disciples and preaching the gospel, and people were getting saved, right? But actually, Acts 14, 23 says, and Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And you suddenly realize, oh, they've been establishing gatherings, ecclesias, assemblies, and now they're appointing eldership over those assemblies. So they weren't just doing Billy Graham crusades, okay? They were establishing ecclesias. Isn't that interesting? But they, they weren't primarily thinking plant churches. They were primarily thinking make disciples. But as apostolic leaders, they were also thinking establish those disciples in communities called ecclesias, churches. So this is hugely important. Why is it so important? Well, when you realize that church planting equals making disciples and making disciples equals church planting, it changes the way you plant churches. You see, you don't evangelize without a church planting strategy. And you don't church plant without an evangelism strategy. Hugely important. If you church plant without an evangelism strategy, you're just going to be taking people from other churches. I mean, how else are you going to grow your crowds? Or if you evangelize without a church planting strategy, you're just bringing people to birth like a maternity hospital, but not giving them a family to grow up in. So you need to have both. When you understand that disciple making is church planting and church planting is disciple making, it changes completely how you do both. And it up-levels how you do both. And church planting with the agenda of making disciples sometimes might look less impressive than the big marketing campaign and the launch and the advertising and the da-da-da-da and all that stuff. It might look less impressive, but long-term, the fruit will be entirely different. And the longevity and the multiplication and the impact will be much bigger. Again, no problem with marketing. It doesn't, doesn't bother me. Great. Do the marketing. Advertise it really well. Make it look cool. Make it feel cool. Absolutely. But just don't make that the main thing. Make the main thing. Make disciples. So I, I, this is from New Frontiers. This is from Relational Mission. There was this blog came out. It's very interesting. Five reasons people connect with the church plant. It gives five reasons. I think this is really good. Number one, people connect with the church plant because, number one, people become Christians. Number two, because prodigals return. Number three, Christians moving into the area. Disproport when people move into a new area, often people gravitate to new churches. That's the, that's the fact. But yeah, they go to some of the existing churches, but new churches have this ability to pick up new people into a new area. Number four, Christians living in the area but worshipping outside the area. So for, um, people who, for example, when we started in Pennycook a number of years ago, people who were travelling from Pennycook to a city centre church, when we started in Pennycook, they thought, oh, there's a church on our doorstep now, and then they start going to us instead of the community. And hopefully that makes them more missional in their community. But that's just, a, that's, hey, it's just one of the things that, it's the ebbs and flows of, it just happens, right? And you just make sure you, if you're the leader involved in that, you just make sure you're handling with care. So you're respecting the other churches, not working against them. And number five, Christians moving between churches. Again, it's a sad fact, but that's, that happens these days. And again, as long as it's done with respect, that's, it's, it's just one of those things. Church plants could initially surge in growth for reasons two to five. Reasons two to five could be an initial influx of people. And that influx could last one or two years. You could ride that wave of momentum. But unless the undercurrent of reason number one is happening, then the growth will dry up and you'll plateau. So reason number one, 
from the get-go has got to be the agenda that's happening, winning people to Jesus. If that's happening from the get-go, then yeah, you'll get the initial surge from reasons two, three, four, and five. But actually, once that wee surge is gone, you're no, no, no longer the new kids in, in town and the new, latest cool thing, but actually you've got a fundamental undercurrent of your winning people to Jesus, that's when fundamental growth happens and churches are established. Why is this important? Well, partly because we need to understand it changes the way we do church planting and it changes the way we make disciples. But secondly, it's, it's really important. Some of you don't believe you, are, you should be involved in church planting. Some of you think, okay, I know the guy in my church or I know the girl in my church who is involved in church planting, but for me, that's why you're thinking, okay, this is, this is about church planting, this is not for me. But actually, I want to challenge us that everyone in this room is involved with church planting because church planting equals disciple-making. If church planting didn't equal disciple-making, then you might think, oh, that's their gig or that's their gig. But church planting does equal disciple-making, and disciple-making does equal church planting. So actually, that involves everyone, every leader, the small group leaders, the worship leaders, the team leaders, the ministry leaders, the department heads, the staff, the administrators, everyone's involved. Some of you are called to plant. Some of you are not meant to be long-term in the church you're in. Some of you are called to plant a church. Might not be next year, might not be the next five years, but maybe seven years' time or eight years' time. Or maybe it is more imminent than that, but some of you are called to plant. Some of you are not called to plant, but you're called to instigate a plant. A couple of the churches get their heads together. Let's instigate a plant together. We're going to release some of our best and some resources, and we're going to instigate a plant. That takes your involvement just as much as those who are going. It takes your involvement to release them to go. So some of you are called to instigate a plant. And then finally, some of you are called to release your best for planting. When the people go from your church to plant the other church and you lose some of your best kids workers, that's where you instantly no longer think that's a bad thing. You realize that's a good thing because we've just made disciples. You are just as involved in the planting process by being sacrificial in releasing people and sowing them as the person who's actually gone themselves. Or when your budget drops because some of your big givers left in that church plant, you don't despair because you see, hey, this is not about us. There's a much bigger picture here. We understand we are all called to make disciples. And as we move as one, and as you move as individual churches, but you also move as a family of churches and you think bigger, then Jesus is building his church. I love what, I love this quote. Fantastic. It says, the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. The mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Over the years in Edinburgh, we've, we've had to send out some of our best people to plant churches. Um, so the first guy who came, came to my church, and I joke about this because when, when we started the church when I was 21, uh, the first guy who started coming had long hair and a beard. And I often joke that he looked like Jesus. And I thought, if you're going to start a church, I mean, if you can get a guy who closely resembles Jesus, <laughs> it's got to be a good thing, right? So he, Bill, Bill Prentice. And uh, he was my first church member. He actually became my first church planter. So years after he came, he then went out and he planted our first church. We planted a church in Inverness. So Bill and Izzy, with about three or four other couples went up to Inverness and they started the church. And I'm still working with Bill and he's still planting a church that's called Lighthouse Church Inverness. So, um, yeah, amazing. So he was a first church member. But we released. Now, could we have done with Bill and Izzy on the ground in Edinburgh? Absolutely. They were great leaders. 
but we gave away them. And then Chris and Sarah. Sarah was a backslidden pastor's daughter um, on drugs, living in Leith. Chris was her boyfriend that she was living with, DJ, on drugs. And they come to our church. Chris gets saved. Sarah comes back to Christ. We baptize them. They become small group leaders. Then they become cluster leaders. We have cluster leaders who mentor small group leaders. And then they heard God's call to go back to Poland to plant. So first they go back and plant in Wrocław. And then they go back and take over her father's church. He planted 30 years ago. And his former backslidden daughter, who's now following Jesus, and her, his son-in-law now takes on the church on the 30th year anniversary. And they're part of Go Global working with us. So isn't that amazing? So Chris and Sarah, but boy, oh boy, we could have done with their leadership on the ground in Edinburgh. And Ian and Sandra, I remember when they first came to our church, I thought, wow, there's an eldership couple right there. Just such great leadership. Uh, and then we released them to plant a church in Falkirk, and they're still working with us, Community Heart Church, Falkirk. And then Amen in Comfort, brilliant leaders. Now they're leading a church in northern Nigeria and have planted also into Yola City. Uh, and really making a difference. John and Belinda, great couple, lived in the Calders for many years. They, they were mentors of small group leaders with us in Edinburgh. But they've, now just, they've just started a church. They've called it City on a Hill in Ghana. Now, I don't even know if there's a hill in Ghana, <laughs> right? I mean, at least it works here. We've got, Edinburgh, like Rome, is built on seven hills. So we, we've got a Bible verse and a, and a city, but I, I don't know if they've got a hill. But anyway, they've called it City on a Hill, uh, Kumasi in Ghana. Uh, and they've got two churches in that city now. Uh, you've got David and Leslie, we released them and about 30 others to be a church in Dunfermline. Um, Kurt and Alida, we released them to start a church in a township in Namibia and on the rubbish dump. So, so the, honestly, some of these people, James and Jess, they're in Hong Kong. The, the great leaders left us in Edinburgh, went to plant a church in Hong Kong. See, if I had all these people still in Edinburgh, we would have some... It'd be so much better than the leaders have currently got. I mean, these, these, these guys, this is Team A. I've been left with Team B. But, you know, they're, but they're all over the world. And, they're, and some of them have gone into different places around Scotland. Some of them have gone to Europe. Some of them have gone to Africa. And some are into Asia. But what a privilege. What an incredible privilege. Because when you, when you define success differently and you suddenly realize that success isn't just the, the bums on seats on a Sunday, but actually it might be to do with your sending capacity, not your seating capacity. Uh, Bryn Jones, who was a contemporary of Terry Virgo, he said that the church's success isn't measured by uh, its attendance, but by the sons and daughters in the faith that is raised up. And so I, th I think it's about legacy. It's about understanding this is about making disciples. And the fact is this, if you keep giving away your best, it will force you to have an on-the-ground leadership and discipleship plan. You can't get away with not having that if you keep giving away your best. It will also, if you keep giving away your best, it will also force you to raise converts into leadership roles. That's a good thing. It's a, it has a healthy impact on the ground. And the other fact is that if you keep giving away your best, it will keep forcing you to raise up younger leaders because you'll need to because you keep giving away your best. And so the only way this is possible is if you deal with the idol of control. You know, you, you want to, oh, I want to just package this church, it's all controllable, everything's in place, I like how this is, it's tidy. You've got to deal with the idol of control. There's some risks involved here. It, it will get messy. Now, it shouldn't be haphazard. You've got to get the balance right. But don't be so prudent, don't play it so safe that you don't take the ground God wants you to take. Be provoked into being a little bit riskier than you've been. 
And you also got to deal with the idol of the bigger church. Again, you keep giving away people. <laughs> We're trying to grow this church, and you keep giving away people. And not just giving away sometimes people, sometimes you're giving away groupings of people. And actually, you've got to deal with the idol of the bigger church because you're understanding there's a bigger vision and God wants to accomplish something bigger. And again, this is challenging, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to say these things, but actually when you're on the ground in a, in a church community, and so when we started Musselburgh, it really impacted our Pennycook guys because some of the guys going to Musselburgh now used to go to Pennycook, and our numbers have dropped in Pennycook, and that has an emotional impact on them. And so there's a price tag for this stuff. It's not necessarily easier. But if, if, if you keep communicating the why behind the what, and when leaders understand fundamentally this is why we do this, we're here to make disciples, then it helps the whole process. Okay, so number one, church planting equals making disciples. Point number two, have a strong prayer strategy. Again, this isn't, the necess- you know, this isn't what you necessarily read in church planting books. They talk about marketing, talk about all these different things. No, no, we're talking about what does the New Testament show? And in Acts, you just see there was a prayer strategy throughout. So in Acts 1, they're praying. 120 of them are praying in this upper room, seeking God. Jesus has said, wait in Jerusalem. And they're waiting and they're praying. And it's in that environment the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the church is birthed. Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved. And what do they become? They become a community. In Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves. Two, one of the things is prayer. It becomes a praying community, seeking God. Turn the page to Acts chapter 3. It says Peter and John were on the way to pray. And they met this lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held it. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none. You know the verse, right? And so amazing, he asked for alms and God gave him legs. It's incredible how, <laughs> how, how, how God did this. But it was in the context of Peter and John were on the way to pray. And then, you know, you just keep, keep turning the pages. Acts, Acts 9, Saul was praying and fasting for three days. Then his scales fell off his eyes and he was launched into his apostolic call. Uh, Acts 10, it was when Cornelius was praying in Caesarea and Peter was playing, uh, praying in Joppa that God spoke to them and the gospel comes to the Gentiles. We wouldn't be in this room if that hadn't happened. And it came in the context of them praying. Acts 13, it was in, while the leaders in Antioch were praying and fasting that God said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. And they were sent out into their first missionary journey, which shook the known world, came out of a prayer meeting. It came out of a moment of prayer. In fact, it was almost just like that when Bill and Izzy left us to go up and plant our first church in Inverness. It came out of a prayer meeting. We were in a prayer meeting. We were calling on the Lord. We were actually praying for Scotland. We were praying for different... And actually, as we felt led to pray for Inverness, and as we were praying for Inverness, into my mind came Bill and Izzy, one of the other leaders in that prayer meeting came over to me at the end and says, as we were praying for Inverness, I just heard God say, Bill and Izzy. I said, I heard exactly the same. So it burst out of prayer. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in the churches with prayer and fasting. So it's a prayer-saturated movement. They're just taking the grounds continually on their knees. Peter Wagner, a church growth expert, predominantly from the 80s and 90s, uh, he did research into the prayer lives of church leaders in different parts of the world. And this is what he discovered. North, North American, American pastors prayed on average 22 minutes a day. Japanese pastors prayed on average 44 minutes a day. South Korean pastors prayed on average 90 minutes a day. And the Chinese house church leaders prayed on average two hours a day. Isn't it interesting? I mean, look, look at that. That's, that's quite stunning. 
notice how the terminology changes from pastor, 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 house church leader, right? The guys, the house church leaders, they've also got day jobs, okay? They're, they're, you know, working and doing jobs as well as praying, whereas the other guys are professional pastors. Um, and we can, you, you can look at that, those statistics and you look at the correlation with the impact of church growth movements around the world and you think, we see a correlation between church growth and praying. Now, don't hear these things, and I know you wouldn't, your new frontiers, don't hear these things in a, in a legalistic framework. All right, so I've got to work harder then, is that the point? I've got to, got to pray more, then God will move. No, no, it's, no, no. The reason we pray more is because we've got a conviction. God wants to do a work. Our salvation is about God doing something for us, right? Church planting is exactly the same. The conviction is, the fundamental conviction is, God wants to do something in the borders. God wants to do something in West Lothian. God wants to do something around Glasgow and around Edinburgh and the Lothians. God wants to do something. God, we have a conviction. You want to do something. So I want to be the person who tunes in and gives you all the permission you can, all you need, all the permission you need on earth to release what is in heaven's heart. I want to be that person who prays your kingdom come. And I want to pray it persistently, not because somehow or another my efforts are going to achieve that, but you want to do this, God, I'm utterly convinced of it, and I'm going to pray until you do what I know you want to do. That's, that's what we're talking about. And it's when there is that sort of prayerfulness in a culture of grace with an expectation of the power of the Spirit that churches will grow and new churches will be planted. Um, do you know, my first ever experience of the redeemed churches, now that a Nigerian church movement, I mean, they're prolific. I mean, incredible. Planting churches, like, rabbits having baby rabbits. Like, I don't know if that's the right phrase to use to describe church planning, but it's like incredible. It's just like they keep birthing churches. And my first ever experience with the redeemed churches was when I was 19, and me and Angie just started dating, and I went down to visit my sister in London, and Angie had come with me. And we went one evening, because there was an all-night prayer meeting uh, in one of the arenas, Wembley Arena or something like that, in London. And it was an all-night prayer meeting thousands, three, four thousand people all night praying, the Nigerians. You've got all these Nigerians, and there's me and Angie, the white ones, right in the middle, all night praying. That was my first experience of the redeemed churches. There's no wonder that in the decades that followed, one of the fastest growing church planting movements in UK has been the redeemed churches, because look how prayerful they are. And the reason New Frontiers has been successful is look at your prayer rhythms. Look back in your roots. Look at the, the seasons of prayer and fasting often a few times in the year. That's your roots. That's why God is working. There is a correlation between praying and God moving. Often when we've started new communities, we'll take time to pray and seek God in the community before we launch the community. So for a while, when we just had Gorgie and Leith um, in our past, we, we sensed that God wanted us to plant another, our third location, our third community. And so the area that was in my heart, and to be honest, from the database, we could see that there were people coming from this area to our Gorgie and Leith locations, was North Edinburgh, Granton, Pilton, Muirhouse, that kind of area. We saw that people were coming from there to our existing services. So I decided, okay, I'm going to take a day a week. So on my Thursday, every Thursday, I went and hung out in that area. And I just walked. I would just go to the area, and I would intentionally go, and I'd walk and pray around the streets of the area. And sometimes I'd take someone with me, and we'd do street evangelism. And really, we were, just, we were just simply saying, God, could you land here? That's what we were doing. We were trying to give God, uh, just, God, we want to give you something to work with here. We're just stepping out in line with the faith that we have. We sense that you want to do something here. 
So we just, every week we went out and we walked and prayed the streets of the area. Anyway, one Sunday, I had a friend preaching, and he was preaching in Gorgie, and I was preaching in Leith, and we had lunch afterwards. And we were sitting down in Vittoria's on Leith Walk, having, having lunch. Great restaurant, by the way. And when we were having lunch there, my friend said to me, and he's quite prophetic, he said, Pete, I, I just heard God say, you're going to start your next location in that direction. And he pointed in the direction. He's not from Edinburgh. He's, he lives in Europe. So, you know, when you're in a different city, you're not orientated, you don't know where everything is, but you sit in that direction. He pointed in the direction. So I got my phone out and orientated it to north and said, so show me in the map, and he put his finger on the exact spot where I'd been walking and praying for the last year every Thursday. Wow. Isn't that awesome? And so, again, I don't know how God will do it for you, but I just know that there are prayers, that God wants us to have a prayer strategy uh, with our planting strategy. Our best ideas have always come out with praying, praying and fasting. Uh, number three, be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 24, there's an incredible story about Abraham getting a wife for his son Isaac. And it's a great example for dads who want to get a wife for your son. So you just, just do what Abraham did, to send your servant find a person, pray that the camels will, you know, that, that, that she will somehow offer, you know, I don't know, fill your car with petrol. I don't know how it will work for you, but just apply the same principles. But Abraham sent his senior servant of his household, his senior servant of his household was a guy called Eliza. And in Hebrew, that translates helper. Interesting. He sent Eliza to go and get a wife for his son, Isaac. And Rebecca, he met Rebecca at this well. And when he met her, he then met her family, and he declared to the family the greatness of the son. He said, this is how great Isaac is. He's incredible. He's wealthy. He's great. He's carrying these promises. He declares the greatness of the son and gives gifts to this family as a kind of almost like a deposit of the life that was to come. And, and then she agrees to go with him. It's a step of faith. I will go with you and marry a man I've never met in my life. What a step of faith. She, she says Yes. She goes on this journey, and, and then at a distance, they see Isaac, and at a distance, they said, who is that? And uh, the servant said, that is, that is the master. And she comes off her donkey and uh, off her camel, and they have this union. And, you know, it's a, it's a true story. But also, like all of the Old Testament, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus, that God the Father sent his senior servant, the helper, the Holy Spirit, that's what Eliza means, the helper, to find a bride for his son. And the Holy Spirit is going around looking for a bride for the son. And every time he finds someone who's interested, he declares the greatness of the son to that person. And they say yes. And he gives them gifts as a deposit of what's coming. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. The Holy Spirit is on a mission. The Holy Spirit is doing something in, in Edinburgh in the borders over in Glasgow. The Holy Spirit's moving and wanting to work and operate across in Livingston and that whole region, across our regions, across Scotland. The Holy Spirit's hovering and moving and working in people's lives. The Holy Spirit's on a mission trying to find a bride for the Son, and He's doing it in every generation, and He's doing it in our geography. And so what we're doing when we're church planting is all we're doing is we're partnering with the Holy Spirit who's already on a mission. We're just tuning into what the Holy Spirit's doing, and we get to be a means by which, through which the Holy Spirit can do it. Isn't that a beautiful picture? 
that we're partnering with the Holy Spirit. So when you come to the book of Acts with that in mind, the Holy Spirit in Greek, the paracletus, the helper, the one who's come alongside to help us. And you see in the book of Acts, it's all the way through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit opening doors and changing things. In fact, the book of Acts shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should probably be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles because it was Acts of God through, through people. It's just like the, it starts in my first book I wrote to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to say and do. Well, that was Luke referring to Luke's gospel. Now I'm going to tell you about what, in effect, he's saying, now I'm going to tell you what Jesus continued to do. It's just time, he, this, it's a, it's a, this time he's going to do it through you by the power of his spirit that has been given to the church lavishly. Uh, that's what the book of Acts is, and that's what the last 2,000 years has been. It's the work of Jesus through his people uh, by the power of the spirit. So in Acts, you see the Holy Spirit constantly maneuvering people and starting churches. Acts 8, 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. So Philip was in the, in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit said, go to the chariot and stay near it. And an Ethiopian eunuch gets saved, and Africa gets the gospel. <laughs> wow, a continent is blessed. Why? Because a man heard the Holy Spirit say. Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them. And you think, wow, that birthed the first missionary journey. You have no idea how many towns and cities and regions and people that impacted just because they tuned into the Holy Spirit in a prayer meeting. Acts 16, 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit not to speak the word in Asia. And then we know that, so the Holy Spirit will hold you back. But then we also know that straight after that, Paul got the vision of a Macedonian man and heard God's calling to go into a new territory. So the Holy Spirit is constantly breaking open the territories. You see, it can't just be a good idea. It needs to be a God idea. And God wants to give his ideas out and strengthen you. So we partner with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit might say, start something in that community. Go and speak to that person. That person in your congregation is called by me to do this, even if it doesn't look like in the natural they are. Let the Holy Spirit speak. Number four, be a moving target. You know, the Apostle Paul, his default was go, not wait. He figured Jesus said, go, make disciples. So his default wasn't wait, his default was go. And you see that in Acts. He was going. And sometimes the Holy Spirit had to stop him from going places. No, 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 whoa, slow down. Not in there. Okay, right, thanks. I'll try this one. Oh, no, 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 the Holy Spirit. No, no, the Holy Spirit forbid us to go there as well. And then he gives him the vision of the Macedonian man. Paul's default was go. Let that become our default. Let's be moving targets. Not presumptuous, but in the fear of God, with humility, asking God to breathe upon what we're doing. But be the people, let's who step out and go. And sometimes God will say, wait, that's fine. I don't mind God slowing us down. I don't mind God cautioning us. But let's be the people who, without presumption or ego, but with humility and faith, are willing to be moving targets that God works with. You know, walk and pray in new areas. I saw, said about how I go into areas and walk and pray. Why not walk and pray areas in your region that you'd never even consider going to? Just, just go and walk and pray, sit in a coffee shop, read, read your Bible for a bit, and just say, Lord, do you want to do something here? Uh, just, just go to places you've never been to before and just ask, Lord, villages or towns or cities, and just ask God, could you do something here? Just be a moving target. Brian Ingram, uh, our friends at Rehope Church in Glasgow, brilliant church over there. Uh, Brian Ingram does this thing. Again, he's a man of prayer. 
And he does this thing once a year where he walks and prays his city. And when everyone else is going to bed, Brian Ingram goes for a walk. And he walks the circumference of Glasgow through the night. And then when we're waking up, he's arriving back home. So I don't, I don't know how many, what, 15 mile, takes a particular route around the city. And he walks around the entire circumference of the city just to say, Lord, would you give us a fruit? Would you give us a harvest in this city? I love that. You know, it just, you can do it different ways, right? But sometimes I've done that in my days, if I have a day of prayer and fasting. If I've got a day of prayer and fasting, I'm all out of sorts. I'm emotionally low. It's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, who likes fasting? It's the worst thing ever, right? So I don't, I just, to sit in your study and pray for the whole day, I find that hard. So what I do is, I'll do the same. I'll just walk around the city. I'll I'll walk a big circumference around the city in my day of prayer and fasting. And that for me is, it gives me a focus of how to pray. But just be a moving target. Give God something to work with. And then number five. And I want you to hear this because I want you to then break into groups and engage with this point. God's strategy is people. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Isn't that interesting? Interesting strategy. Now, if that's all we heard of that, then we'd move on from it. But here has a clue for actually how the gospel would spread and how churches would be planted as you go into the book of Acts. You see this principle, and I'm going to call it the person of peace principle. So let me give you a definition of the person of peace. So some statements. The gospel spreads through networks which already exist. You see that in Acts. The gospel spreads through networks that already exist. The person of peace is the doorway into the community, a neighborhood, or a network. And you see that when Jesus sent out the disciples in twos. They were to find a person of peace and stay in that house, and that was going to become the the launch point. Okay, how do you identify a person of peace? They are open to the message. Number two, they are open to the messenger. And number three, they will introduce their network to the message and the messenger. That's a person of peace. Now, just before you think I'm making this up, (laughs) not that you would think that, but let me give you some examples uh, in my own life, but also let me give you some examples from the Gospels. And then you're going to do examples in your groups from the Gospels and from Acts. So here's an example from the Gospels. Um, Peter and Andrew, the brothers. Jesus connects with Peter and Andrew. And then if you follow the trajectory of Mark chapter 1, they connect together. Jesus invites them to be his disciples. Jesus has found his people of peace, brothers. Later on that day, Jesus miraculously heals Peter's mother-in-law. Later on that evening, the entire town of Capernaum gather at the doorstep and Jesus is driving out demons and praying for the sick and healing the sick. So through connecting through Peter and Andrew, what happens? An entire town is connected. You understand? So you get the right people and then you touch a community. Or you get the right people, you touch a village. You get the right people, you touch a town. That's how this works. And that's one example, but there are multiple. Let me give you, let me give you just two examples uh, one from my experience, one from one of my church planters' experience. So Bill, who I mentioned earlier, the guy who looked like Jesus, 
He, he, when he first came to us, was volunteering at a conference center. That's where he stayed. He stayed as a volunteer at this conference center. That's when he first started coming to our church plant in Edinburgh. And when we said, hey, we're going to start this church, in my living room, we're going to start this church, Bill very simply invited all the other volunteers from the, the conference center he was staying at, and they came along. So for the first year, the, the five or six or seven people who were coming along were also volunteers at the conference center. I connected with one person, and then instantly it connected me with their wider circle. That's how it spreads. Let me give you another, another example. Ammon and Comfort. Uh, they felt God say that they were, they were from northeastern Nigeria, a place called Gombe. Very risky area to be a Christian. Uh, the Boko Haram were very active, and recently the Fellaini herdsmen have been devastating Christian communities and killing Christians. Lots of kidnappings, lots of um, terrible things happening, even terrorist attacks. They're in Edinburgh, finishing off a master's degree. They're originally from Gombe, and they feel now God is calling to go back to Gombe, but this time they feel to plant a church. And so I start building a relationship with them, do some training with them, and they arrive back in Gombe. So you imagine you've gone from a pretty safe city, Edinburgh, to the worst place on planet Earth to be a Christian, and certainly don't plant a church. So they arrive in that place, and with their own money, they buy a plot of lands, and they build a church building. Now, when I say they built a church building, I mean, it, it looked a bit risky. Yeah, you know, you just really glad they had a Scottish weather, put it that way. It was, it was a bit flimsy, but nevertheless, there was a church building there, and they built it with their own money. And it could take, it could take you know, about 150 people. And they, sent a lot, they set a launch day for their church plant, and they invited everyone they knew around the city. Anyway, in the meantime, they pray and fast 40 days. And again, don't be too impressed, okay, because they, they missed breakfast and lunch and had a light dinner for 40 days. Okay, so yeah, I understand. It's still impressive, okay? But uh, they had breakfast and skipped breakfast and lunch and had a very light dinner for 40 days in a row. And they were calling on the Lord to do something. So the launch day comes. Can <laughs> you imagine the anticipation? So 120 people were there. And they were looking at them. This is great. As they looked around the room, they thought, okay, they're from this church. And they're from that church. And they're from another church. They realized they'd invited their Christian friends and there was lots of well-wishers there. So they knew that week two was the litmus test. Week two's rubber hits the roads, have we landed or not? So week two comes, and there was one guy there, and he was drunk. You believe that? You've just left one of the safest places on earth to one of the most dangerous places on earth to start a church. With your own money, you've bought land and built a building, and you just spent the last 40 days praying and fasting. And you've got one drunk guy in your church. I mean, how would you feel? I mean, that was, it was like, what the heck? And so they, they, they were so devastated. And, but they decided, well, we'll have to get to know this guy. And so they start chatting to him, and they discover that he's drunk because his wife's at home dying of cancer. And so they went that afternoon to see the wife, and they prayed for her. And God performed a miracle. The tumors, she got healed, completely healed, miraculously healed. And that family came to Christ. And then three families in their community came to Christ. And that's how the church started. <laughs> so you think, that's just amazing. That's just amazing. There's no, there's no manual for that. There's no handbook for that. There's, you're, just, you're just left with these principles, and you don't know how God's going to do it for you. But I just see that, nevertheless, God gave Ammon and Comfort a person of peace in that drunk guy, and that unlocked door. And actually, drunk people have been the pattern of how God has used them going forward. Drunk people in miracles. That's how they've seen growth. 
because you've got the Muslim peoples in one sense, on one side, then you've got the religious Christians on the other side, then you've got a bunch of people who just don't connect anywhere, they're in the pubs, and they've been reaching those people, and they've been seeing, and sometimes it caused pastoral problems, and sometimes leaders slip and end up in problems, but they're seeing a work of God's grace, and they've now got about 120 people in the church, and they've planted a second church into Yola City, but it started with a person of peace that God gave them, and how do you find that person of peace? Again, it's not, they haven't got a sign over it. I'm a person of peace. You know, they haven't got a wee badge like you all have, person of peace. You know, that, but but you, I don't know how you'll find them, but you will. I just know if you're in prayer and you're a moving target and you're going with the gospel, somehow or another, God's going to wangle it that you're going to find this person of peace. And your church, not just for new church plants, but for existing churches, this is how existing churches also grow, by connecting with person of peace. So let that journey of exciting faith emerge. So what would be great to do is, is just in your groups, just to, well, you're not in groups yet, get yourself into groups, maybe groups of three, four people, and discuss these verses. So here's, here's some verses. Here's some examples from the Gospels, and here's some examples from the Book of Acts of Person Peace. So here we are. In your groups, just spread yourself around, take some of these examples. So just each group take one example each. Each group take one example. So one group, for example, might choose Matthew the tax collector. Uh, one group might choose Cornelius. One group might choose Lydia and the jailer. But just take one example, read the verses, and just simply answer this question. How did God work through this person of peace into their network? I mean, you could also ask the question, what was the impact of, of God working through that person of peace? So, all right, get yourselves into groupings and just take, I don't know, let's, let's, let's take a little bit of time just to discuss. And if you've gone through one example, feel free to go to another example. And then I'll, I'll let Luke uh, guide what happens next. So I realize we're coming into lunch. How, have we, how long have we got, Luke, before lunch? Oh, we've got plenty of time. Oh, tons of time. All right, okay. So, well, let's take the next 50 minutes. <laughs> no. Well, we could, maybe, we could maybe take 20 minutes in groups, and then uh, we, can, we can do something else after that. All right? Okay, so enjoy chatting. Maybe some music will play in the background, and uh, let's get in under the skin of this, this truth.